now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Bugs and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast from Class to Colts on the Cheese in Between. The movies are B, Darren Heyman is grade A. And I am your host, Mr. Jason Giaconetti, joined by my dad, Mr. Al Giaconetti. Hey, good afternoon, Jay. Today we're going to go back another 70, 70 years for another classic um, movie that uh, was supposedly a trendsetter, which may or may not have really influenced the, the genre, uh, the 3D genre. And we're going to be talking about House of Wax with Vincent Price. And we'll get to it right after this. Ultimate Dimension in Terror comes to the screen in Stereo Vision 3D. Vincent Price at his diabolical best will take you room by terrible room on a journey to the ultimate chamber of horrors. Stereo Vision 3D will synthesize before your eyes the terrifying reality of it all. In Stereo Vision 3D, House of Wax. House of Wax premiered April 10th, 1953 in New York and then worldwide across the U.S., at least, not worldwide, technically, uh, April 25th, 1953, with an 88-minute running time. Your director is Andre Dutoff, and he was, uh, you know, 
famous for, I mean, well, obviously this is, he's, so he's making a 3D movie, but he only has one eye, which is, he has no depth perception, which is always interesting when you're making a 3D movie. Um, but he was, uh, um, you know, in his career, he was famous for, um, after World War II, because um, he had to get out of Europe and stuff like that. And then he went to Columbia Pictures and he worked with, uh, in Westerns with John Ford and like, so with the gunfighter and, uh, in like Pitfall and Crime Wave and things like that. Um, and then he eventually did uh, Play Dirty with Michael Caine and Nigel Davenport. Um, your screenplay credit goes to Crane Wilbur. Uh, it's based on, of course, the Waxworks by Charles Belden. Um, producer is Brian Foy. This is uh, Warner Brothers for your distribution company. Uh, your music is uh, David uh, Butolf. Um, and then, so you have a budget approximately $1 million and it took in 23.75 million approximately. Uh, this is actually credited as the first, um, color 3d feature film. This is credited as being the first major studio 3d color, um, you know, in movie in 3d. Uh, and then, well, and then uh, like Columbia Pictures had uh, Man in the Dark was the first major release, but that was 3D, but it was black and white. And it premiered two days before this because mm -hmm. Columbia was desperate to get it out before that. So this is not the first 3D film, but the first color 3D film. Yep. And since I'm sure most of us had never even heard of Man in the Dark from Columbia, this is the movie that really kind of started it. Now, a lot of people point to like Creature Black Lagoon, like that was in 3D. Yeah, but that's 54. Yeah. Like that's not this year, you know, so... Uh, your main star, of course, is Vincent Price, um, and, uh, and you have Frank Lovejoy, uh, Phyllis Kirk, Carolyn Jones, uh, you know, rounding out the cast. Your cinematography was uh, Burke Glendon and Prevel Marley, uh, and then, like I was, okay, so, and we, as we said, it was uh, Warner Brothers. Um, this movie was actually re-released in 1971 um, in theaters in 3D with a full advertising campaign. Um and then, of course, there's the the remake from 2025 in name only, given that they bought the name House of Wax. The same way there's a House on a Hill remake, which is nothing like the other one. And the 13 Ghosts, which is, if you want to hear that, we uh, I covered both versions of 13 Ghosts that were both covered on this um, back in the day um, with um, uh, Jonathan Inbody. Um, and actually, this movie was, in 2014, uh, selected to the Library of Congress and preserved as being culturally, historical, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Um, and where the uh, ones real quick, sorry. The I had it right in front of me. Uh, so yeah, so um, it actually it premiered obviously in New York. Then it premiered at the Paramount Theater in Los Angeles, um, and there was a number of celebrities there, including Rock Hudson and Julie Garland and Shelley Winters and those kind of people. Um, and then uh, you know the the whole thing with this was it was a, actually the top it topped the box office charts for five straight weeks. This movie was huge. It made about fifty five million, uh, not fifty five, um, five point five million in just rentals just in North America box office alone, um, and was the biggest was one of the biggest hits of nineteen fifty three, which I think some people forget about because it's a horror movie. But this thing was huge. Um, it also was originally available in the uh, Stereophonic, the three track magnetic soundtrack, which was cutting edge for the time. So they put a lot of money in things behind this. All right. So let's take a look here. So, um, you, here we go in New York city in the early 1900s, professor Henry Jared. Now that's Vincent price, of course, 
is a talented sculptor who runs a wax museum. He creates wax statues of historical figures, but his bit and his business partner, Matthew Burke, is frustrated that Jared will not make more sensational exhibits like those that draw crowds to the competitors and wants to end their partnership. All right, stop there for a second. So this is, what's, what's the original one called? Uh, not not Horrors of Wax Museum. This is the, the original Mysteries of Wax Museum. That's 1933-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Faye Ray? No, not Faye Ray. Um, who's in it? I forgot who the, I forgot who the woman in it is. Um, but her role in there was at the time people thought was very, very controversial because she talks back to men. She does whatever she wants. She doesn't listen. I don't remember who it is. It's Faye Ray. No, it's Lionel Atwell. Is it Atwell Faye Ray? And Faye Ray. It is Faye Ray. Yep. Okay. Yeah. But at the time that was super, super controversial. And so it's, it's funny because that role, I mean, Faye Ray, again, Everyone knows Fay Ray from King Kong, right? Kind of thing, right? But that role there was, at the time, was controversial. You look at it now, you're like, okay, what? It's, she's just questioning what it is. Yeah. And then literally, they have said that that became the model for later day Lois Lane. That that character became that. Um, because she always is questioning getting herself into things. So um, when people saw this, I don't know if they initially, you know, they might be expecting more of that. But we don't get anything like uh, Mysteries of the Wax Museum. No. This is that. That's a procedural. Yeah. This is, you know, I mean, there's well, cop stuff going on, but at this core, this is a horror movie, you know, kind of thing. So, yeah. kind of the one thing that the that that the re one of the reasons why this movie was really a huge success was that the the uh, advertising campaign was, you know, you well, TV was just in its infancy, but it was starting to erode some of the, the, the crowds at movie theaters. So the producer said, if we try 3D, it's something nobody's ever seen, and they're yep. never going to see it on television. Yep. And the one thing that, that I mean, it, it was it was a lure, but the movie is really good. So it it's not like you, you felt like you were disappointed. The, the opening credits, they're, they're, they're in three dimension. Yeah. And it... It sets a tone for the rest of the movie. Now, the rest of the 3D in the movie is kind of cheesy, and we'll get to that as, as we get yeah. along. But that opening, the opening credits, and the production values on this movie are spectacular. The color was saturated on, yep. the, on the screen. Yep. You, I don't think maybe some of the musicals might have given you that kind of, that kind of color palette. Yeah. But here, I mean... I'm sitting there, I'm saying, because I, I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. I think the last time I saw it was maybe 10 years ago on TCM. Um, and I said, wow, this is, a, this is really, really amazing. But again, the other thing, too, is that when you see these things uh, on, on, a, on a good print, it, the, all the colors are, are popping. I don't have the, the Blu-ray. I can't imagine what it looks yeah. like. But your sword Blu-ray is everything is crystal clear. The colors yeah. pop. It's very vibrant. But that's one of the main things. So it's like um, people are always saying, well, well, do we really need and then fill in whatever movie it is on Blu-ray? And I'm like, well, if you don't have it, I mean, yes, it's easy to buy the Blu-ray, right? But if you're okay with what you have. So perfect example of this would be put on the, ori the original West Side Story, not the new West Side Story, right. the original West Side Story. Put on your DVD of it. It's fine. Put on the Blu-ray restored version and all of a sudden... Now you see the everything in the city. You, everything pops. All the colors that were there yeah. that are very muted. Because we because we saw... So um, West Side Story was on one of the movie channels. And it was restored, cleaned up. And Kelly goes, wow, this looks a lot brighter than I remember. Because she remembers watching right. the, the the tape, you know, and then the DVD. And I said, well, yeah, Kelly, this is the restored uh, uh, Blu-ray, the, the, the five-disc Blu-ray set. She goes, 
really? I'm like, yeah. I go, it pops because the, the colors are there and then the reds and the blues. Yeah. And that's really what you don't get. The, the more muted tone that you got, even going from VHS to DVD, unless someone knew what they really were doing, most of the DVDs were, they were cleaned up VHS copies, but they're not even up to the 1080 just of a regular Blu-ray, let alone a new 2K restoration of anything. Yeah. Um, there's movies being, quote unquote, rediscovered now that you can see them. The biggest example of this, I think, to me, has always been, and I say this to Luke all the time, I said, when you watch the tape of The Hills Have Eyes, they were talking, but you didn't know there were people in the scene. Then you watch the Blu-ray, you go, oh, there's people in the scene. And now you watch the cleaned up Blu-ray, you're like, oh, I see what those people are actually wearing in the scene. Like, it's so much, di because yeah. they were there the whole time, it just, it was so dark, and so whatever, and that's just the well, nature also, of the beast. Then they have the standard version of the 3, 4.3. You know, but even even that wasn't yeah. the issue, Dad. It literally is so because it's because it's filmed. There's lights, but yeah. but they didn't want to make it look like daytime, so they're shooting in low light. But now they can go and clean it up. It's the main difference when you go look at and you see it sometimes with black and white movies, um, like older black oh. like older black and white movies, like like um, like like the original Scarface and stuff like that, like those old gangster movies that were that no one's been cleaning those up. But now on Blu-ray, yeah. they're much cleaner, even though they haven't gone through a 2K restoration and a full scrub. They look a lot better, you know, um, whereas movies that are like lovingly restored, like from the 2K, from the original negatives from the whatever, like, um, um, oh, not the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good, the bad, and the ugly has that too. What's the one? Bring me the head of Alfredo oh, Garcia, right? Remember I said to you, because they messed up on the disc and it had the wrong audio, which I didn't know was wrong audio or, or the wrong version. It wasn't the restored 2K. It was, or the 4K, it was restored 2K. And I brought over a look at this thing. You're like, Holy cow, like it doesn't look anything like the original movie. Yeah. Now you can see everything. You see the flies and all this stuff. If you've never seen the movie, it's it's yeah. kind of gross at times. Um, and it's very, very violent. It's Peck and Paul. So, yeah, you know, yeah. It's Peck and Paul. So it's 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 not a, the most violent Peck and Paul movie, but it's definitely in his wheelhouse. So uh, a friend um, a friend brings a wealthy art critic named Sidney Wallace, and that of course is um, Frank Lovejoy. No, excuse me. No, that's not Frank Lovejoy. I went too far to go. I just lost his name. Uh, uh, Paul Cavanaugh. Um, who plays the the art critic? Um, so he brings them over, um, and he's interested in buying uh, buying in in buying Burke out when he gets back from Egypt in three months. But Burke says he needs the money sooner than that for another investment opportunity. He says they burn down the museum and collect twenty five thousand dollars in insurance. Right um, to Jared's horror, Burke then sets a fire and spreads rapidly. The two men fight while Jared's wax masters masterpieces melt. Um, Burke gets the better of Jared and leaves, and Jared is still inside when the uh, the building explodes. Yeah, and I, that one there with the, you know, the 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 dialogue with the with the the potential new investor is cordial. And they, but then when he says, "Well, I've got to go to Egypt. And I won't be back for three months," then the the the, the current partner says, "Well, I got to have it sooner," and Price says, "Everything will be fine," and then. The cordiality ends, and yeah. he goes ballistic. And go from I mean, zero to sixty pretty quickly. Right. I mean, he, it, it it's, it, he would callous disregard, but not only the price. He, he just starts bending down and starts lighting everything without, without even looking. I mean, it, it was just all of a sudden. Hey, all I see is dollar signs in my head, and he goes down. He starts lighting it, and it, wax goes. But the, all the, the clothes and stuff. I mean, we're talking about turn of the century, so nothing has got, uh, you know, any kind of any kind of Pain, flame, flame right, retardant right, stuff. Right, exactly. And it gets up. But his callous disregard for Price, he leaves him to die. That is a very effective scene. Yeah. Because, and again, th th it's not 
done quickly. You know, where, where the where the edit the editing goes by. What no, the hell is yeah. it? It's done. And they show they show um, model after model after model. The wax melting off. I mean, I'm I'm sure that. Whoever it was probably very effective in 1953 in the theater in 3D. Yeah, yeah. People were like, because you're not even 10 minutes in and already you're killing, you're, you're quote unquote, killing mm -hmm. the main character right. and setting fire to everything. Yeah, I mean, obviously. That, that's a finale. Right. You know? This, you know it's not the finale. No, I know so, what I'm saying, but so, that's a finale so to a movie. This scene portends the rest of the film. Yeah. So, um, overcoming the fact that Jared's body was never found. Burke is able to get uh, all the insurance money from for himself. A disfigured man in a cloak strangles him and stages the murder to look like a suicide. And a few weeks later, the same man murders Burke's fiance, Kathy Gray. Uh, so let's just stop there for a sec. So we're now introduced to, um, so now he's got his revenge. You, you kind of start figuring it's got to be like Jared coming back to get him, but we don't know at this mm -hmm. point yet. I mean, the deductive reasoning would give you that it's got to be the guy he just wronged. And who else would be killing him? It doesn't make any sense. Well, the reason the reason I thought it was well, not that I know. I mean, I, I you know, I, you yeah. know, it's that is that that revenge is sweet, but Price is now a deformed cripple. He's disfigured. But um, we don't know that yet. No, no, no. But the, well, the, the right the, the killer is is deformed because he's hunched over. Yeah, he's hunched over. And he's yeah. dragging his leg almost like a, the mummy in some of the like the ghost of mummy. Right. You know. The, the, yeah. 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 But. It's it's a unique way. Uh, uh, well, the scene then plays out, where uh, Burke is he's confronted in his hotel room yeah. or whatever, and the scene where where where, where uh, Jared gets his full revenge is he hangs him in the in the loft yeah. with the elevator. Right. That guy was great. Yeah. I mean, because it was the way it was done with the with with the dummy. When it falls, it doesn't look like a dummy. Right. I mean, I, that's what I'm saying. Whoever whoever was doing the the effects on this movie did a great job. Yeah. The, and I never heard of any of them. No. When, when I look when I looked at the uh, at the credits. So, uh, uh, her unemployed uh, roommate uh, Sue Allen um, comes home and stumbles upon the murderer. She flees and he gives chase and she makes it to her friend Scott Andrews' home. Uh, that night, the disfigured man steals Kathy's body from the morgue. Uh, by lowering it out the window to two accomplices. Okay, so um, we now we, we've now met uh, Sue. We've now met Scott. Those are going to be the, the the other two, the two young couple in this kind of thing. They'll be part of everything as we go. Um, your um, Sue Allen was played by Phyllis Kirk, um, and Scott Andrews was played by uh, Paul Serini. Uh, okay, so here we go. So uh, Wallace uh, receives a letter from Jared and learns. He uh, miraculously survived the fire, though he now uses a wheelchair and his hands are too damaged to sculpt. Okay, so this is where we now meet Jared again. And he's in a wheelchair and his hands are crippled. He cannot possibly... So you immediately like, well, that can't be the guy who's killing people because he's in a wheelchair and his hands are all messed up. Um, so Jared asks uh, Wallace to invest in his new wax museum, which will feature statues made by his assistant Igor, which of course is played by Charles Bronson, but not as Charles oh, Bronson. Bronson is Charles Buczynski, which is his real name, in what has to be either his first role or very, very... Well, he has no speaking part because he's, he's supposedly a deaf mute. But I'm saying yeah. that he, but he could have been like in a Western or oh, something. Oh, no, 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 yeah, he could. Yeah, but, but, I'm saying, but this is his first role where he's yeah. probably, you know... And he has, and he he's right there, front yep. and center, for quite a bit of the movie, but he doesn't have any anything to say. Now, I mentioned this to you. Uh, if, 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 I'm, if I'm an agent 
who's hiring an actor who's going to play a semi-major role or an important, and actually it's an important role in, in, a, in a, a high budget movie like this. A million dollars back then was still a pretty good budget. Why would you have him be credited as Charles Buczynski? Maybe they didn't uh, know he was going to go into whatever. Yeah, but I mean, but just, but you could have been Charles Smith for what you, what you have. Yeah. But as Charles Buczynski, it, that is the, that is the, the trivia question that is always asked. What was Charles Bronson's original name? Yeah. I mean, it's been asked a million times. Yeah. So that's Igor and then uh, Igor, excuse me, and then Leon Averill is the other one who's the assistant there. Um, Jared hopes to recreate his favorite piece, pieces from the old museum, but will also concede to the popular taste by including a chamber of horror showcasing acts of violence from the past and present, including the apparent suicide of Burke, whose corpse went missing from the morgue. So um, this is where we start learning that, like, he can't do it, but he's going to instruct them and he'll have other sculptors. And that's where Scott Andrew comes in because he's right. a young sculptor. Like, everything just seems to line up real well. Sue attends the opening of Jared's museum with Scott and is troubled by how much the Joan of Arc statue looks like Kathy. Let's stop there for a second. Some of those cheesy 3D effects are on full display here. Right the barker at the door. Right. Now, the barker at the door, people remember that because how many times you hear a bark and he's hitting the paddle balls into the audience, right? Right, right, at, you. right at you. Because that was never done anywhere else before this because that's new at this time. In Friday the 13th, part three, when he's got the yo-yo coming at your face, you're like, I've seen this before, you know. But the barker at the door, a lot of people remember that. In fact, when this was on Svengoolie, they talk about that. That is one of the people always say, there's always a guy barking all this stuff, like whatever. People remember that because it was so different yeah. I, than what you saw in a movie like this. Right. I mean, that, that was, that, that's what I was saying. That was a bit of a, of a cheesy interlude there just to, to, to bring the, the 3D back into effect. I wonder if, if, we, if, if on, the, on, on a real 3D, if you saw it in 3D, either in a movie theater or if you had a 3D TV, when the, when the fire is taking all the wax statues uh, apart, when the eyes are falling out and mm -hmm. things, is that it, it didn't look like that would have been something a 3D effect would have would have emulated. It would have just been, you know, the wax coming down. Yeah, but the fire's right at the front of the screen, which yeah. then pushes it into the audience. Yeah. Anything that's closer to the screen, and and then obviously the foreshortening happens behind it, that feels like it's out there. The fire would have yeah, been we, around you and yeah, stuff. More POV, and, yeah. and let's be honest here, if, if this was a William Castle movie, uh, they'd have been pumping <laughs> smoke and like, you know, setting people on fire for real. Because that's what, you know, William Castle was never, a, if, if he could have a gimmick to put in the movie, you know, like he put his buzzer in a seat if he could. What? That didn't happen. Tingler. Anyway, so, uh, so, so Sue feels that the Joan of Arc looks like Kathy. In fact, she is Dead said it is Kathy. Um, Jared overhears and he claims that he based it on the photographs of Kathy he saw in the newspaper. Um, he hires Scott, who is the sculpting prodigy of Wallace, as an assistant and asks Sue to model for his new Marie Antoinette statue as she has a strong resemblance to his er, to the early one. Um, though the Marie Antoinette is like, that's the, like, literally his, like, that's what his main focus is. And it's, you, you kind of can see that, like, he's a little off. Then you're thinking to yourself, well, if I was in a fire and it blew up, I might be a little off too. Mm. Um, but, you know, so believing Kathy's body was used to make the Joan of Arc statue, Sue talks to Detective Lieutenant Tom Brennan. Um, and that is, what's Frank his name? Lovejoy. That's Frank Lovejoy. Um, and where am I here? Where I just lost it. Sorry. Oh, um, he agrees to investigate Jared and his, um, and, uh, Jared and his museum. 
Uh, Sergeant Jim Shane recognizes Averill as, okay, so when they go, so Jim Shane, I know it's not Art Carney, but it looks a lot like Art Carney. Yeah. They yeah. does. Yeah. Like, with the hat and everything, I'm like, because mm, like from the Honeymooners, like that kind of yeah. like the way he was like, well, yeah. he did me, I know it's not him. Yeah, when he looked he, like him. He's he's a character actor that uh, we that you, when you see his face, you said I've seen him. I know you don't know his name, but you've seen him many many times as a third, a secondary and, and tertiary. Yeah, it's Dabs Greer is yeah. his name. And again, um, Dabs Greer for those wondering, um, and he does look like it. He was uh, a regular on Gunsmoke as yeah. Mister Jonas. Um, he was on the sitcom Hank. He was, uh, the Reverend, uh, he was in, he's the Reverend Robert Alden. That's where everyone, okay. So anyone who's my age, he's the Reverend Robert Alden from Little House on the Prairie. Um, and he's yeah. also in the Green Mile, the Tom Hanks movie for 99. But he looked a lot like Art Carney. Um, but he talks very quickly and the way he yep. manipulates words and stuff, which again is different than the way other people are speaking. People are trying to be very prim and proper and up. And then I know that there's well, that. He's a cynical Police, right, uh, but 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 the thing is, but he's very different than the than no, the guy who's with, yeah. who's very he's, like he's by the book by the logical, book. and this guy is very like whatever. But even the way he talks to Avril, he goes, "Yeah, I'm gonna work on that, whatever." And he's like quick with how he's saying things. You're like, but it's so different. It plays counter, yeah, because normally in these movies the cops are all cookie cuttered out, right? They're all the same cop, blah, 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 blah. but when you have cops who are different or like detective, whatever, it's okay. So in them, if you make um, if you make the what's his oh I just blanked on the actor's name the the one who plays the cop with the curly hair and then um, the one who plays um, oh you get James Arnett and James James Whitmore right if, if James James Whitmore I couldn't remember James Whitmore if you make James Whitmore and James Arnest the same person yeah. they're not I mean they're they're different I mean one of them's kind of like look like I mean he's he he they're both heroic they both do the right thing they both are always the good guys but they're not the exact same guy like one's trying to look at it like look. We got to approach this from the aspect of what the government's talking about. It's like, no, no, no I got to protect these people. Like, you know, yeah. instead of doing that, because you have there's no reason to separate the two of them, but to make it different, it makes it stand out and it makes the interplay better and it makes those scenes mean more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, now, oh, one of the things that when when Frank Lovejoy is now brought into the uh, into the equation, they wind up going down into the into the basement and the basement set. I looked at it and said, it is so detailed. It reminded me of the the uh, the laboratory in Frankenstein. Yeah. It was it's fabulous. Everything I mean, you, your eyes, you can't take it all in in one shot. Your eyes move to the left, move to the right, look down to the middle. It is that's what I'm saying. The production values here were just spectacular. Yeah. And so you're you're not bored. There is not one spot no. in this movie no. it, it moves. where you're bored. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Jim Shane recognizes Averill as a wanted criminal who, for breaking parole, Shane arrests Averill and who has a pocket watch belonging to the missing deputy city attorney on him, uh, though he says he found it. Now that deputy attorney is, uh, the body they use to make James Wilkes Booth in the Lincoln assassination. Um, the same night Sue arrives at the museum after hours to meet with Scott, but Jared sends him on an errand. When he heard she was coming, not finding anyone around, she pulls the brunette wig off of Joan of the Ark, exposing Kathy's blonde hair mm -hmm. underneath, um, which proves to her that the figure was indeed Kathy's wax, uh, Kathy's body coated in wax. Yeah. Now, Sue, earlier on, when when she th when she sees the, so she's up on, she's like she's touching, touching it, scraping and she, it. And when 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 she goes to see the detective, she says, 
or she actually mentions to, I guess it's her boyfriend, you know, why would a sculptor put an, uh, a, earring. an earring uh, puncture in, in, in her ears? Because she only had it in one. It's not on the other one. And so they, the, when they come back and they talk about it, they say, well, he, they, he might have seen her uh, on, the, on the, the, the morgue slab, you know, and right. with, with the pictures. So there was always an answer. But but, right. again, but both her ears are pierced, but she only wore one, one earring. earring. So the problem is, is that he said, well, Mr. Jarrett would be very mad if I missed a uh, detail like not having your ears pierced. But he didn't put earrings in both ears. That's what I'm saying. That, that's, that's the part, like, because you see her even question. She was like, but her ears are pierced. Like, well, yeah, he would be upset no, about it. Only her, her right ear is pierced. Her left ear is not. No, but that's the whole point. Yeah. That if he, she didn't have earrings, but why would you put one earring in? Joan of Arc, not Joan of Arc. Yeah, Joan of Arc didn't wear one earring. Well, she, yeah. But that's the thing is, but if both ears had earrings in, it would not have looked weird. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. But that's what's making her keep questioning. Right? Uh, where are we here? So, um, Jared observes her uh, discovery and gets up from the wheelchair. He grabs Sue and strikes, uh, and she strikes him. She shatters the wax mask that conceals his disfigured face. Sue recognizes Jared as the murderer and faints. Okay, so let's leave it there for a second. Um, so, very Dr. Fives feel here. Yes. Many, what, how many years earlier, right? Like a decade plus earlier, yeah, right? 71. Yeah, so so I'm not saying that that they didn't borrow the idea here, but like even the way he looked, now Fives is much more of a cadaver and, you know, kind of thing like he's right. much, but that Fives is wearing a mask the whole time, you know, kind of thing, right? And that's, um, you know, that literally, and, and most, a lot of people, the bottom of Dr. Five, even if they don't remember the movie exactly, remember Vincent Price, what he looked like with the, the, the pink face and the whatever, at yeah. the organ especially. Uh, to, get a, to get a drink, Averill, an alcoholic, tells Brennan that uh, many of Jared's wax figures have real bodies under the wax as the police race over to the house of wax and Jared prepares to turn Sue into his beloved Marie Antoinette. Scott returns to the museum, finding Sue's purse next to the wig and the wheelchair. Um, and he starts searching for her. Igor tries to stop him, and they tussle. All right, stop it there for a second. Um, so this is only in Hollywood would this guy who playing Scott Andrews have a chance against <laughs> against uh, um, Charles Bronson at this point, period. Like, Charles Bronson would have took that guy apart because, I mean, the guy playing Scott Andrews, it's uh, Paul Persini. He's he's not a small guy, but he's yeah. certainly not big. Well, and when, when you when you see you see Bronson, I'll, I'll call him Bronson. When you see him as in in the in his his clothes, he's got what you would call um, the the fifty style T-shirt. Right. You know, it would have been appropriate if he was if this was East of Eden. He would have had a pack of cigarettes tucked under right. His, yeah, under yeah, his yeah. Shoulder. But his arms are he's, huge. He's huge, yeah. and he he is just chiseled. Yeah. And the thing is, he has the makeup that they put on him makes his face look a little gaunt and, and, and menacing. So that adds to it too. I mean, he's not, he's not a pleasant guy to even look at. Yeah. Um, so, but the thing is, but there's no way he, in a real fight that he had a shot at this. Um, so uh, the, pol the police arrived just in time to prevent Igor from decapitating Scott with the guillotine. Um, in one of the displays that the police storm into Jared's workshop and Jared fights them off until he's knocked into the vat of hot wax. Brennan moves Sue out of the way before the wax pours over here, her, and that is that is how the movie ends. Yeah, now, well, before we get, I just want to say that when when she's she is uh, it's supposed 
she's supposedly naked. She's laying in the in the in the vat. She's and, as naked as you could be in 1953 on, right. on yeah, movies. From, no, from the neck up. But, oh, no, no, but actually, from the from you the can see, like she's got something covering part of her breast, but like she's pretty naked. naked yeah. Like she's pretty naked. But I'll I mean, you, was, you know, the, the the scene that that she's in there. I mean, obviously, the tension is building. Is she going to get covered with wax and what have you? But there is a real nice touch. They show her hand scratching the side of the uh, uh, of the box that she's in. Yeah. And and the where the where, where she's scratching. The fingernails have have, right. have have made made indentations. Right, because in it's wax. Yeah, and so well, no, she's digging the, the wax. Then, yeah. Scared stiff. Yeah, so she's digging on the wax. Is there? Um, so so what obviously uh, and that happens here is and as we said, this movie it moves the whole time. The problem is the end of this movie. This movie needed to be five to ten minutes longer. Yeah, we never say that. I never say movie. Need, I always say movie needs to be five to ten minutes shorter. This one needed an extra five or ten minutes because you could have like push that out some like five minutes is all you really need because it just things happen very very quick yeah like they kind of wrap it up because they were like this movie's going to run too long it didn't even it ran, was runs 88 minutes but the problem is at 88 minutes like they wanted to keep it you know under an hour and a half and whatever kind of thing because they wanted to make sure they got enough showings in and stuff like that um which became again certain movies were allowed to be two hours certain movies were allowed to be gone with the winds and the stuff like that were allowed to be as long as they needed to be but house of wax wasn't this was this is again at the end of the day still a genre picture yeah but uh, it was it was a major production by warner brothers you and they invested a million dollars and then to, to end it the way they did you wonder if there is that there is a, another another ending now my this is this is I, I may be way off base here but the ending of the movie price is that's not vincent price going and fighting with the cop going up the stairs it is it is someone who is a double supposedly for him if you slow the film down or even stop it you can see that the rubber mask that the guy who's fighting the cop has on is you can see his neck you can see that it's just a rubber mask it doesn't look anything like the when when prices when the wax is knocked off his his face by sue yeah it it doesn't it's nothing like him and that that, that when i went at the ending that was the one major disappointment that that you have it just it just and then he, then he goes up and you don't see his you don't see him being and you, all you see is his back he goes up he gets punched he falls in and you don't you don't even see him fall into the wax you hear a big splash and and that's the end of the movie or that's no, not the end of the movie. There, well, it is there, the end of the movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, but there, there's a little, there's a little thing coming after that, and, and, and that's pretty much the end of the movie, Dad. Yeah, I mean, he's dead at this point, but yeah. so you know, kind of thing. So. Oh no! But then they had that little, the little extra that they put in was a uh, a little, um, you know, comic relief. Yeah, at the end. Right. Well, they, they're back in the office, right? But I'm saying, yeah, but that's, they, that's he wants to give to her her, her wax, wax head. Copy. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, you know, so this movie's available. Uh, like I said, it's it's there's a DVD release that came out in, in uh, 2003 that has Mr. the Wax Museum as a bonus on it. The 3D Blu-ray disc, which can be watched in 3D or 2D, of course, um, also includes Mystery of the Wax Museum, which is also in, in standard definition. This was actually reissued. That exact disc was reissued by Warner Archive Classics. It's fully cleaned up. Like I said, it's nice and bright and colorful. And that came out in 2020, so it is definitely available and out there for you to find. Yeah. So now, there was a there was a, a couple of things that really I, was, that struck me. 
for a 90 minute movie basically they had it had an intermission had, yeah had an intermission i mean are you could they could they have possibly thought that if we don't stop this movie at 45 minutes a lot of people are going to faint you know, so you want them to get up, yeah, I don't get know. up, I go, so. get, go get up, a drink of water or whatever. I don't know. That, that was a very big thing in Italian movies. No matter how short the movie is, every movie had to have an yeah. intermission. Well, again, intermissions, back in the 50s and 60s, you had an intermission on what they call road shows. Like, yeah, know, yeah, right, like, right, right. right yeah. but at the same time that, that this movie came out, I think a year later, you had Ten Commandments. Then you had Ben-Hur. Yeah, those and, are way longer movies. No, 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 I understand. Yeah. No, but, but you also had to change the reels. Right. You know, no, but, so. but, but that's what I mean, is that, those are the movies you would expect, and this thing was just a surprise. Right, but I'm saying it doesn't—it yeah. doesn't add or detract from the movie. It just—it says to me, "Boy, they really thought this movie was—you had to—you had to have an intermission." It was almost like that was—that was part of making it a great movie or or an important movie. Yeah, and well, again, the, being the, the the first color 3D, it was an important movie. Yeah, the thing is though, is that this was uh, in in it in Italy, like every single movie had it, like even like Zombie. Had an intermission, but what do they put right at the intermission of zombie? The eye ripping scene. Yeah, right. your, your eye gets to really. If you haven't seen zombie, it's literally seventy years. Like no, it's like fifty something years old. Go see it. Her eye gets ripped out of her skull. You're like, oh, and that's the intermission because guess what? Everyone did. And they're like, did you? Oh my god, did you see that? And then you go back in mm -hmm. and you're pumped up for the second part of this. That might have been there. Some of their thinking. Who knows? I mean, again, this is also twenty years prior to that. So yeah. now you got you have to. One of the things that that I that I, I liked about this movie was obviously Vincent Price, um, as 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 good an actor as he was in earlier earlier films, a lot of period pieces and what have you. He was always third, fourth, maybe sometimes fifth build, but he always did a really good job. Whether he was a good guy or a bad guy in a in a sword and not in a sword and sandal, but in a, um, uh, one of the the the. King and King, King and Queen movies with the, the medieval medieval stuff. movies yeah. and things, but here, there's one scene where he takes, he takes, he gives a tour. So, do you want to know why there's an intermission? I found it. Well, let, let me let me finish, finish your thing, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, the tour he gives to the to, to some of the people to explain what he's doing. Oh, in is, the uh, it, yeah, with all the yeah, yeah, is phenomenal. It is pure price. It is if you just close your eyes, you can picture him. In his in his best form uh, as an actor, giving that uh, giving that uh, um, that uh, it's only lasts maybe a minute. Yeah, but a minute, two go, minutes. Yeah. But he goes through each one, and it's it's just priceless. Bum. That's that's not a pun. I just yeah, it just came out. So the initial 3D screenings of the 88 minute film included intermission, which was necessary to change the reels because okay. each of the theaters had two projectors was dedicated to one stereophonic image. You have to shoot out two projectors. So normally you have the first half, ah, second half. Right. You're shooting on two of it to the screen. I knew it had to be a real thing, okay. Dad. There's no reason you wouldn't have to you have to change real at well, some point. I didn't point. know that. Yeah, well, I'm saying, no, no, but I'm saying that's usually why there's an intermission. No. Like, no, why, no. Is there, why is there an intermission in Ben-Hur? Why is there an intermission in El Cid? Why is there an intermission in, like, name the long movie? Because they got to change it out. Because yeah. they because they, they went, this guy went his full run, this one, I got to change this thing out. You got to have time to change him because God forbid you didn't change him. Yeah. And they were being shown on a wider, the wide oh, screens, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, oh, and so you York, couldn't even do. Oh, the New York, uh, most of the uh, the road shows, uh, that, believe it or not, were not shown at Radio City Music Hall, but they were shown at the Criterion, yeah. the Low East State, um, you know, and, and those theaters they they could hold two thousand people, yeah. and you know, and you actually had a balcony, and in, I think, in, um, if I'm not mistaken, on the Low East State, you actually had a second balcony, which 
I mean, now you're way up there. Yeah. And but the whole point was yeah. those were not tickets. You you ordered those tickets in advance. Right. It was and like going got, to the. It was like going out. Right. Yeah. You, you used to order the tickets and you, they would come to you in the mail. Yeah. And you know and you, you you would try to get. I mean you obviously you would send it off as soon as possible and ask for a particular section. And if you got the tickets, and they were right the, the first row of the, of the balcony, you had that was that, that was seats. idea. Yeah. Yeah. Now, they. One of the things that, uh, well, we talked about it being the too quick of, a, of, an, of an ending, but the, on the disc that I have, which is the DVD, the, the trailer is really good. The, if you see the trailer, it's, gonna, it's, it's the one that was shown in the movie theaters maybe a month before the thing came out. And then when you had the, uh, the, the one sheet laying up in the, in the, on the wall, the, this was, it was yeah. done really well. But on the special features which was a compilation of cameo shots of Hollywood extras, the Hollywood stars, and notable uh, athletes at the time, at the premiere of the film, right. at the Grauman's Chinese That's theater. what I just said before. Yeah, yeah. no, it, well, it wasn't the, it wasn't the Grauman. It, it wasn't the Grauman's? Well... I'll tell you which one. Oh, no, keep going. It, it, it was... Um, right. I, I, well, it was the, the Paramount Theater. Paramount Theater. That's Paramount, right, Paramount Theater, not here. Yeah. But... The the one thing that was really funny was in the very first begin the beginning of these special features. There's no talking. It's just it's just the the a, a movie reel going. Lugosi is dressed as Dracula, mm-hmm. and he's got a a man in a monkey suit on a leash. So is- do you want to know who that was? That was Steve Culvert in the monkey suit. <laughs> so here's here's what happened. Um, the producer Alex Gordon knew that Bella Lugosi really needed money. So he arranged for him to stand outside the theater wearing a cape and dark glasses on holding a leash with the actor Steve Culver in a gorilla suit on the end. Lugosi was interviewed by the reporter, uh, Shirley Thomas, who thoroughly confused the aging star when she asked the prearranged questions out of order. And um, embarrassed, he left without attending the screening. Footage of Lugosi in front of the theater appears in the the newsreel released in theaters in 1953. So, yep, that's what all this stuff from. All that stuff's from the uh, the the newsreel. So, um, yeah, this is a movie that Spanguli shows. I've seen it. It's been on Spanguli at least two to two or three times in the last couple of years. Um, when this is on, it's always uh, one that. I mean, Spanguli always draws good crowds, but like you know, for for something that's on literally like basic TV, it's on you know me TV, right? Um, but when this is on, this is always one of their higher rated episodes. He always says that too. He's like, this is one people always ask for, but because it's a good movie, you know, kind yeah. of thing. And even watching with commercials, not that I want to watch commercials. But the movie's interesting, and you stick with it. And at you know an eighty-eight minute running time, it fits really well within his show. He can do his other shtick and everything mm-hmm. else that's with it. So, um, but yeah, folks. So uh, House of Wax again, like I said, available if you want to see it. Um, it used to be available. I want to say this might be on like archive.org as well. You can catch it for free, but um, it's readily available if you just search it up. You can probably get the Blu-ray pretty cheap, um, which is well worth your time. If you have a three D Blu-ray player. You can watch this thing in 3D because it's fully restored 3D as well. All right, folks. So that about does it for this episode uh, of uh, as we're we wrapping up House of Wax. Um, up next, you're going to see the Christmas episode where uh, uh, Haley's going to be on with me again. We're going to cover 1978's The Pink Panther in A Pink Christmas. <laughs> um, so make sure you check out Haley and I uh, on Christmas Day. You can hear us talk all about the Pink Panther and his attempts to feed himself, because that is literally the entire the entire episode's about that, and Goodwill and all other stuff. So, folks, that about does it for House of Wax. 
Um, again, if you have any feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Send it on in. We'd gladly read it and share it here on the show. So like we say here, ladies and gentlemen, keep those cards and letters coming and keep watching the skies. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which up until a few days ago was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. This has been an episode of Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. If you'd like to contact me, please email the show at botsbugsbabes at gmail.com. If you'd like to find me online, I'm on Facebook under my name, Jason Jacknetti. I often contribute to the Two True Freaks Facebook group. You can visit my Facebook page, The Art of Horror Collective, and you can search the hashtag, The Art of Horror Collective. On Instagram, find me under my name, Jason Jacknetti. And search the hashtag, The Art of Horror Collective, as well as the new hashtag, Bots, Bugs, Babes Podcast. I'm the only one using them. I'm also on Twitter, at Jason Giaconetti. And you can visit my webpage at www.theartofhorrorcollective.wordpress.com. All movies, characters, stories, music, etc. are properties of their respective holders. This is a fan work, and any use of any property is purely for review discussion, entertainment. So don't sue me. I ain't got anything anyway. There is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. Will you stop?